Um, okay. Are we ready? I think so. What's for, it? for the names part, so that we yeah. know. It's always Gabby. It's, right. it's always okay, so we'll go me, Doogie, Luke. Are we gonna go in like the order oh. of the screens? <laughs> okay. I always follow Gabby. You always follow Gabby. You always follow me. Okay. I just <laughs> never remember. Okay. Cool. Now it's in there. Welcome to season three of The Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Duji Tahat. And I'm Luther in my purple sweater hues. Hey. <laughs> This week, we're talking with the poet Ada Limon about the human condition, carrying grief, and Kentucky. Our signature drink for this episode is the January Gimlet, a bright, easy-to-mix cocktail with gin, cranberry juice, and lime. Ada Limon is a current Guggenheim Fellow and the author of five poetry collections, including The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. Her fourth book, Bright Dead Things, was named a finalist for the National Book Award, a finalist for the Kingsley Tuff Poetry Award, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. She serves on the faculty of Queens University and Charlotte Lowe Residency MFA program and lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, but before we go chat with Ada, I think we should give some updates because it's been a while since we put an episode out and this is the first episode of season three. three. And <laughs> some exciting stuff has happened in the between time, uh, especially for you two, I feel. So Duji, why don't you give us your updates? I feel like I'm on the spot. Uh, you are. The spotlight is on your beautiful face. Uh, yikes, yeah. Well, I guess there are two chapbooks of mine mm -hmm. have been published um, in the in-between time. Uh, Here I Am, Oh My God, uh, which is through the Poetry Society of America, um, which you can purchase uh, through there. And then uh, Salat, um, which is published through Tupelo and um, still mind-blowing to think about was also long-listed for a Penn Volker Award um, alongside just like true legends like actual legends i see that list and i'm like but me little old me how why <laughs> yeah just like yeah i just want to underscore like how wildly amazing that is that with a chat book you are on this list like i'm pretty sure that has never happened in the history of ever Ever. Like you're on there with like basically like collecteds. Like <laughs> it's a it's a flex, the likes of which poetry has never seen. Yeah, I just hope people aren't mad at me. I feel like if I saw <laughs> like I, I would be maybe petty enough, like in my older self to look at that list and be like, who is this motherfucker? <laughs> Forgive me, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. Uh, oh, it's so amazing. I love it so much. Luther, you've had some big news as well. Yes, I am getting a new dog. Just kidding. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly, um, I mean, 
Okay, sure, I'll say it. Um, I was awarded the Ruth Lilly um, this year, well, this year, last year, 2020. Um, and I was also the recipient of the 92Y Poetry Prize um, 2020. And my forthcoming book is now under contract with Boa Edition, A Shiver in the Leaves, dropping fall 2022. Hey. Not purchase it yet. <laughs> That's like a, a poetry hat trick. Right. Yes. Ooh, it is. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait for this book. It's with the perfect press. It's the perfect book. Ugh. Yeah, you listener are not ready. Like you, no. you should gird your loins. Uh, <laughs> I think they should ungird their loins for this probably, book, honestly. Probably, you're right. That's That's right. Do the opposite. Let it let it go. Let it unger your loins. Your loins. <laughs> your this loins. And you will still not be ready. <laughs> no. Wow. Truly ready. one of the best books I've ever read in my life, if I can say. Love you all. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Gabby. Well, I have no news. <laughs> 2020 and this like whole break in between our seasons, I really have no updates truly. Um, except I got this really beautiful new letter opener that's bronze and it has a horse head on it. So that's exciting. Um, I literally haven't published a poem since February, 2020. So we're coming up on a full year since I have published a single poem, but I do have a lot of things forthcoming. So that's exciting. I do have, uh, a poem that's going to be coming out in the New Yorker. So <gasps> that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that will be my, my contribution to the updates. Like it hasn't happened yet, but it will supposedly be happening at some point. And that's great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but, but you've been writing like stellar poems like all year. Like y'all, listeners, listeners, she's been, she has been writing, writing <laughs> all 2020. We have a for to peel back the curtain a little bit we have a every wednesday we share poems um amongst ourselves and gabby is the most consistent person in there <laughs> sending poems and uh sometimes she revises them in like within 24 hours and between the revisions i'm like what visitation like what <laughs> how <laughs> like I've, I, I barely got through my day, you know? I'm, I'm like making lunch for kids, like trying to get shit done by deadline. I'm like a mess. And then like by the time I sit down to read the first email, there's like some revision where I'm like, damn, she already thought about all of the things I was going to say and then did it better than yes. I did. Oh my God, y'all are the sweetest. This is ridiculous. This is why you're the um, most happy to be the, uh, the MFA professor of the rest of us. Oh, yes. I'm not <laughs> teaching that damn thing in school. So it's going to be you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So those are our updates. Those are cute updates. Um, but we should still answer a question, too, per our usual format. Um, and our question this week is... What does play mean or look like for you when it comes to poetry? 
do you mean like our own poems or like when we like talk about other poems, we say like the play here is such and such or I love how they're playing with this and that. Hmm. I guess I'd say more like for you, like if you're like, I want to get more like playful in my poems or I don't know, maybe that's like too specific. But yeah, if like just like what does that mean on the composition side of things for you? There's sort of two things that come to mind, although they're maybe related. They're like, I'm obviously uh, a very formally driven uh, poet. And so I really, you, I lean on that as a way to play, like um, thinking about just like the, like I love throwing things into form just as a way to see like what emerges, like as a revision technique. That's one of my favorite things to do. I think like also sound like my way into poems was through spoken word and like youth spoken word is really adjacent to rap music, which is like a thing I also flirted with for a while. So like, I really love the sonics and like just letting like sound sense like carry me. Um, and then like in the revision, figuring out if it makes like any other kinds of senses. Um, and then like, I love moving shit around. Like, like if I like look at the sentence, like if I do like, I'll do like a sentence revision where like I just like, each line is the sentence and then see if like we can move it around to see if it makes some other sort of sense um, and like stanzas to, I think just like looking at like discrete units um, and like jumbling them around. Like, and I think just generally not taking myself too seriously. I like, I've been thinking about humor a lot lately in poems too, like trying to employ jokes. Um, my advisor last semester said that there's like a nervous laughter in some of my poems and I'm like trying to lean into that to see like what can that tell me I like that I like that a lot um I think for me when I think of play or wanting to be playful in a poem I think I don't think, I, yeah, I know for sure that I like playing with vulnerability a lot. And how far can I push something to to the edge? Like how exposed can I be without being without it being too much or too gimmicky or um, too um, sentimental? And so like I've been like, for the poems I've been writing within the last year, I've been trying to like, how often can I say, love in this poem like how often can i say the word love how often can i be like exposed as well how often can i have sex in this poem and how can i say i'm having sex the most vulnerable way and exposed way and so i feel like for me it's like playing with the idea of honestly i guess perception really if i'm really thinking about it, the idea of perception and how one perceives this speaker in the poem and what can i how, like again how can i say this thing so much um and so openly that's not going to be too much um and then small things like um, I really do take line breaks very seriously. And so sometimes I have to be like, okay, I'm just going to break here just because I want to break here. And like, is that, do I feel comfortable doing that? And that for me, that's also sort of a play for me, um, making myself uncomfortable in ways that I, um, I don't know, want to see myself do and things like that. Yeah, vulnerability slash perception and like some line break stuff. I like the idea of like playing with vulnerability. Like those two things feel like really contradictory, but also like 
necessary in some ways. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Robert Frost's definition of poetry as play for mortal stakes. Like, it's like these two extremely, yeah, like you just said, contrasting ideas, danger and play. And like, that's what poetry can be. Like, that's part of like the magical tension. Um, yeah, and Duji, when you were talking, I, I realized I don't think I understand much of a distinction when it comes to poetry between play and experimentation. Like I, I tend to think of them basically the same way. It's like, if you're gonna put a poem through, like you said, like a different form just to try it out or um, yeah, just like break all the lines. It's like an application of an almost arbitrary new element to see what happens, to like make room for yourself to be surprised or to happen upon something. Um, it's yeah, it's like you don't necessarily have a specific goal. You're just going to kind of like do it and see what happens. Um, so I definitely have that association with play. I also, I had another thought and now I can't remember what it is, but um, those are the things I'm chewing on for sure. Oh, I guess connotatively, I think of play as like being open to moments of delight in poems so like you said like not taking it overly seriously not feeling like everything has to be doom and gloom um but just like being open to humor delight um the lighter or more joyful aspects of being human as well as like the dark scary stuff that i really love yeah i as you guys know i've been thinking about the erotic a lot lately um and and actually like an, a very non-literary source material for me that has been just like hugely helpful is Esther Perel, um, who is like a sex and uh, relationship therapist who wrote like a really fascinating book called Mating in Captivity. But what I really love is her podcast, um, Where Should We Begin? Which is like anonymized uh, sessions with couples. Um, and uh, she does like a bunch of queer couples too. So it's like, you know, across the, like it like examines gender too as, as it's happening, like these sort of same patterns across these different gender dynamics, which is really fascinating. But, but she does a whole thing about like play as like a necessary element of the erotic um, in like a really like applicable, like serious way, right? Like, like in your sexual relationships, it's like, like if it's not, if there's not play there, then like it can't be full in a very serious way and she's like not even talking about like just sex like your erotic relationship is broader than just sex that like play has to be like invited in um for it to be rich and for you to like sort of delight super important to discovering like where your edges are right and like where your edges are is like how you discover like the other and a more idealized version of yourself and yeah Yes, I love, I'm so glad you brought that in. And now I'm thinking associatively, like play, games, games which necessitate rules. Like it's not like play is this utter absence of structure or rules. Like in fact, to play is to acknowledge that like there need to be like some rules and some boundaries and like the game board has its edges. And I think that's really exciting to think about in that context. Yeah, patterns is like are fundamental. Right. Like like you can't really play without the strictures there in the first place. I think this is why people love sonnet so much, because people love sonnets because the idea of like you can do so much within these 
you know, limitations, right? And I think people love form because you can do so much with this form because there's rules and boundaries, but you can do so much with within that. I was thinking a lot about, Duji, about how you use forms a lot and how you kind of incorporate play within the form and how that allows you to form to then kind of develop and grow in like amazing ways. And just to think about like, I always think of forms like, I think forms scare me personally. I just cannot write in form um, because of the limitation. Like I, I want to make sure that I'm writing perfectly to the to those limits, right? But I think for others, it allows them to exceed the limits and exceed the form and exceed like a kind of playfulness that I just can't always grasp. But I love seeing it when it's done successfully because you can tell like they had fun writing this poem, right? Um, you can tell they have fun doing these things and you know you're battling these, these limits and you know. Um, erasing the edges and rewriting the edges over and over and over. You can see the play within the poem. Um, so that blows my mind, like reading those poems like that, because I'm just like, I can't, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. It is so interesting how some poets find form such a playful, liberating space and others find it the opposite. Like I'm, I'm more like you, Luther, for sure. Like, I don't think I've ever written like successfully in a received form of any kind, <laughs> uh, but not for lack of trying. Like I've definitely tried, but it's it's not the it's not my jam. At least at this point in like my poetic life, and I think, yeah, there's just like something inherent for some people that it's just like gets things firing, and maybe not so much for others. I don't know. Do you? I don't know, maybe this is way off base at this point, but I'm curious, like, do you all think of yourself as like rule followers or rule breakers, like outside of poems? I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I don't know why. Um, I was thinking about like the idea of like um, uh, neutral good, like chaotic good, like things like that. And like how, uh, I, don't know, I think I'm just learning myself over and over and over consistently within like different like contexts. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot, like, I'm very much a type A person, I'm a person who like will love creating a spreadsheet and color code it and it will look at it to calm myself down, right? Um, and that relates to like, I think the idea of like rule following, I think. I think I, I, I have a hard time understanding people who don't follow rules that make sense, right? So like, for example, like, why are you running a red light? Like, what do you, what, what's the purpose of doing that? Like for what? Like the rule is to stop the red light because if you don't, you can cause harm to other people around you. And so for me, it's like you're making this rule because what? Like for what? And so I follow rules. I think that makes sense to me for the greater good of people. Um, not to say like things like are, I don't agree with laws, right? So I think rules and laws for me are different. I think rules and kind of guidelines follow a certain social norm, like social normalcy versus laws follow a very strict, like institutional privilege, like kind of thing that I can't get into. Rules makes a little more sense to me. It's for the greater good. You don't, you should wear a seatbelt in the car because if you don't, you're going to get, you might get hurt. Like things like that. Like, you know, and so I'm kind of a, a rule follower as long as it makes sense. Yeah, I'm cracking up inside because I feel like this is an extremely astute uh, observation masquerading as a question from you, Duji. Because like, <laughs> I do think there is, yeah, uh, definitely a relationship. I think I, 
yeah, to a frustrating degree, am a rule follower. And that is something that I really struggle with um, about myself is my inclination to like be very obedient and to enjoy having literal parameters and being able to be like, yes, I did. I did this. I checked this box and, um, and whatnot. So yeah, I'm sure that does have something to do with a relationship to received form and like whether it feels stimulating and liberating or like another box to check. And, and I would maybe even like add another wrinkle of like, I think for me, I have always um, projected like sort of rule following, um, like, but like as a way to do what I really wanted to do, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm the golden child at home so that like when I leave, I can do whatever the fuck I want, you know, <laughs> which is like feels very much like my relationship to form or it's like, I'm going to show you this thing and then I'm going to do whatever I want once we're inside of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all have our degrees of, like, our subversive sides, for sure. Um. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I love this discussion so much. But I think we should get over to our conversation with Ada because she has such brilliant things to say about play and form and all of this good stuff. So we should scurry on over there. Scurry. Three. Scurry. Instructions on not giving up. More than the fuchsia funnels breaking out of the crab apple tree, more than the neighbor's almost obscene display of cherry limbs shoving their cotton candy colored blossoms to the slate sky of spring rains. It's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. When all the shock of white and taffy, the world's baubles and trinkets, leave the pavement strewn with the confetti of aftermath, the leaves come, patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us, a return to the strange idea of continuous living despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine then, I'll take it, the tree seems to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist. I'll take it all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so very few poetry collections I find illuminate the human condition like your book, The Carrying. The human condition being characteristics that highlight supposedly key events in one's life, right? So love and marriage, death and mortality, having children, conflict, faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes I myself even say that poetry is supposed to make us remember what it is to be human. And I think this is why so many of us write or draws us to the magic of poetry. So I'm curious, um, why do you go to poetry? Like what draws you to poetry to write it and also to read it? Yeah. I think there is, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for that. Um, I think that I do go to poetry to find some sort of music of the world that I'm having trouble hearing. So I think that when I feel stuck or even if I don't feel stuck, but I feel a need 
of some kind of recognition of what is the magic and mystery of the universe. Um, the only thing that gives me that satisfactory pain or acknowledgement or identification, the only thing that gives me that is poetry. Um, and it is such a unique experience to be moved or hurt or relieved or recognized in that way. And um, I think from the very first moment I found poetry, I thought I didn't know that uh, an art form could do that, um, especially in such a short, compressed period of time um, that you could read something for a minute and then feel transformed afterwards or different or even just more alive. <laughs> um, and I think that still surprises me. I think it is still the surprise. And yeah, it's, it's the great gift of that. I also think it's the, um, I've said this before and I really believe it, that it's one of the, you know, one of the only art forms that has breath built into it. And so it is literally telling you to breathe, to slow down, to acknowledge the moment. And so while something may have existed many years ago, uh, at the same time, you can read it. it. It is still in sort of the way that poem is made. It is still acknowledging the present moment. So it has this timelessness factor, and yet it has this complete compression of like you reader who are reading it now, this is meant for you in your breath, in your body, in your mouth, in your ears, in your heart, in your blood. And so there's a conversation that is occurring between both the reader and the page, the poet and the page. And that feels, I mean, I don't want to be too woo-woo, but it feels magical, you know? It feels magical and it feels like time travel and it feels like um, freedom. Do you remember what your first interaction with poetry was? Um, you know, I, I started reading poetry, I think probably at a very young age, uh, just like the rhyming, the wonderful like Shel Silverstein poems and, and rhyming poems um, that I would find here and there. And I also really loved reading lyrics without the music. Like I loved the liner notes. You know, and like opening the my my father's albums and looking at the back and looking at the liner notes and sometimes with the album playing and sometimes not and and I love that and I think that was also an experience with poetry in a different way, um, or at least with lyrics and lyricism. But I um, but it wasn't until like I was fifteen that I discovered it and thought, oh, there's something more happening here, and that was um. There was actually the poem, which I, I love, I almost chose it to talk about today, was is the poem One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. And um, it was on a test. <laughs> and uh, I, I fell in love with it so much so that I asked um, my, my teacher, uh, Mrs. Lale, if I could keep the test. <laughs> because I had never read anything so beautiful. And she was like, well, you want to keep the test because there was a poem on it. And I was like, yeah, yes, I do. Um, and so from there, I think I really became kind of obsessed with what poetry could do. I mean, and I also think that's just a quintessential love poem. And I think love poems to this day are really, really hard to make 
And when I read one that moves me, I'm like, oh, right. There's a reason why people have been writing love poems for eons, you know? In preparing to talk with you, I was revisiting some of the interviews you gave back when The Carrying came out in 2018. And when you talked with Carrie Fountain for Poets and Writers, you said, I feel like some part of me has lost interest in play and poetry for the sake of play. Now I want only to get to the root of things. And this really struck me and resonated deeply with me. And it's actually something I've been talking to some friends about this year, in particular, what play means to us when it comes to poems. I have some friends for whom like playing the surrealist games and writing in response to certain kinds of prompts that to me seem like pretty arbitrary, like that's really enjoyable and rewarding for them. And I can appreciate those sorts of things for the social aspect sometimes, but for me, increasingly that doesn't feel like what I come to poetry for. And I don't think obviously there's like a right or wrong way, obviously whatever feeds you at whatever point in your life is the right thing for you. But um, yeah, I'm also wary though of approaching poetry with too much seriousness. So I guess my question is, where do you feel like you are now in your writing when it comes to play and seriousness? And maybe how would you define those terms as they relate to poetry for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's nice to hear something that I said that I still believe is true. Um, <laughs> I still, and I actually think it's probably gotten uh, gotten worse for me. Um, and I I love what you said about you don't want to come to it too serious. And I and I think that there is a part of me that sometimes needs to like okay, enjoy this, make art. Um, you don't have to suffer. Um, and, but there is this other part of me that feels like I have lost the part of me that wants to write like collage poems or centos or like, I just have no interest in doing that right now. I, um, I understand if it helps people and I, I see, I see them as very useful exercises, but I, for me, I think I don't see them as helpful in creating what I need to create for myself. Of course, everyone has different ways of doing that. And I think play is incredibly useful in different parts of my life. I mean, I, uh, in order to work out, I do, you know, circuit training and very serious exercises, but I also do a lot of hip hop dancing. <laughs> so I feel like play is a really actually a powerful place. Uh, I mean, a, a powerful proponent of my own life's purpose, but I don't know if it's in my poetry. And I think um, that's not to say I don't experiment or I don't um, allow myself the freedom to have humor <laughs> or to make fun of something or to have sarcasm or, you know, deep irony or any of those things. But I think I am less and less interested in play as performance or play as exercise or play as um, I think anything but getting it getting me to the page. Like if it gets me to the page, great. But unless I feel like I've somehow made something that's textural, that's has a muscular to it, that has some sort of 
power and strength to it that has a heft. Um, I'm less and less interested in it. Um, and I, you know, I, I hate to be that person that's like, maybe it's because I'm getting older, but it could just be that I'm getting older and there's a certain musicality that I'm more interested in um, than I was before. But I also want to, I guess I want to add one other thing with that sort of, I, you don't want to come too serious to the page. Because that's when also, you know, writer's block hits. Because if you go to the page being like, well, I need to discuss all the big things that are wrong with me. <laughs> right? Like, let me heft all the big ticket topics of my life and try to put them in 14 lines. Like, that is also when you can never write again, right? It's too much pressure. So I think that for me, when I talk about that, it's more of how can I reflect the world and how can I reflect me in the world and show an authenticity of what this human being is experiencing at this moment in time, um, which could also be funny or you know full of song or full of spirit. And it doesn't necessarily have to be um, grief ridden or trauma ridden. Yeah, I love that. I, I love to thinking about, um, you know, like the art that you want to make in the world, like that is like representative of like how you're moving in it. Um, and, and that's, I think, a really good segue into my question, which is about like vulnerability and the different kinds of vulnerability you bring in. You've said in other interviews about how this last book, The Carrying, um, represents a venture into a new kind of vulnerability for you. Um, you know, whereas in the books you wrote before, you were emotionally vulnerable and the carrying, uh, you become physically vulnerable, disclosing intimate details about the body, uh, fertility treatments, and never mind too, like sort of the adjacent experiences of your husband and your family and bringing them in. Um, so I guess I'm curious sort of selfishly as I work through <laughs> my own uh, stuff <laughs> and, you know, I hit sort of a next level of exploring like different levels of vulnerability, which I think also like, you know, Luther and Gabby, all of us are really interested in just as like a general gesture. Like at what point for you in putting this book together, did you settle into that vulnerability, if at all? Um, like what did that then sort of teach you? And then in your new work, like, are there other new vulnerabilities even that you're sort of exploring um, that you could tell us about? Yeah, that's a, another great question. Um, all of these questions are so wonderful and deep. And um, I really appreciate also the deep reading I know that goes into making these podcasts work. So I just want to honor that. And um, you could be doing a lot of other things and I, I appreciate it. Uh, it means a lot to me. Um, I, I think that I... It, this was a hard, The Caring was the hardest book for me because of its vulnerability. And I think partly because I have always wanted to be seen as strong. And I have always wanted to be seen as able, which I think, you know, says a lot about our world. Um, and I didn't realize that I had been holding that Um and I didn't realize that that was an armor. Uh, instead, I thought that that was safety. And I mistook, you know, safety for armor, armor for safety. And so it took me a long time to figure out how to make this book both safe and vulnerable at the same time. Because what I didn't want was to feel like I had 
splayed myself open and left myself open and couldn't then pick up the pieces. So I think the big part of making this book for me, and I, if you know, if you are in the middle of making your things, as you said you were, uh, I, I had to write quite a few of the poems. I think there's probably 15 or 16 poems in here that I wrote without any, any thought of publishing. And that I just wrote because I needed to write because that's how I work through my stuff. <laughs> um, and that's how I survive. Um, and so that is a huge part of, you know, what it is to make something for me is like, okay, well, how, how, like, where can I put this? Where can I put this? Where can I lay this down? And poetry is where I can lay it down. And um, so I, it took me a long time. It was probably six months to sit on those poems. Um, and what I, you know, to be very honest, what I had to do is I had to look at my husband and say, I think we should be done with trying to have a child. And he said, I think so too. And let's discontinue sort of this path and let's be happy with this life. And as soon as that decision was made, I was able to look at those poems in a different way. But being in it fully and writing from a way of like not knowing what, how this is going and what, how this is going to turn out. Do you write a poem about maybe you don't want a child and then you have a child and what does that do? <laughs> you know? So I, I think that I, it allowed me some freedom and some space and some clarity. Um, and I think some of those poems were written without any clarity, clarity at all. They were written deep in the middle of unknowing. Um, and I think there's a grace in that. I, I'm glad that I wrote them in that. I'm glad I allowed myself to write through that. Um, but I couldn't share them with anyone else until I knew for myself what kind of ground I was standing on. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, I've been thinking about Audre Lorde a lot <laughs> and just like rereading generally and, and just sort of the way that um, poems and like poem making sort of like make things possible. Yeah. Um, and like, I guess like I'm curious about your process of like, uh, how you square like the work of like making poems and then like sort of squaring that like with your life like mm -hmm. is, that, is that a thing that that uh, that rings true like before the carrying or do you feel like that was particularly true for this book like where does you that know, I think it rings true for most of my other work but I feel like there's a certain the stakes are higher with the carrying because it is talking about my physicality and my body um, and I was also really sick when I was writing the book. Like, so on top of going through some of these fertility treatments, I was also having, you know, I had vertigo for almost five years straight. Um, no one could figure it out. I had multiple MRIs. I had, you know, I mean, finally it's apparently vestibular neuritis, but now there's also like, like many of those odd things where someone's like, or it could, could have been, or maybe if it comes back, it's, you know, so there's a lot, there's still that. And then I also deal with, you know, with chronic pain. And um, it's something that I've never really thought about. I mean, I thought, I thought about because you push through it, but I've always thought that like when everyone goes to the doctor, that when they say like what your pain levels are, that everyone just said five. <laughs> like I was like, no, like everyone's at a five, right? Sometimes a six. <laughs> and then my husband was like, no, no, not everybody feels that way all the time. 
Um, and so witnessing that in, in how much I had sort of denied that was hard for me because it was like, I feel like I'm someone who's very present in my body. And I had realized I was denying so much of my own just actual physical pain and presence. Um, and so being going through that, it was also like writing through stuff that was like, this is, I want to write this because I want to feel better. And then in the moment you can kind of be like, oh yeah, I feel good. And then the next day you wake up and be like, I feel terrible again. And it's the poem hasn't, hasn't worked its spell. Um, and yet it, I do feel like there, they can be spells and wishes and sort of like, okay, how can I use this in a way that propels me to focus more on what it is to heal? Um, and I think that work was really important in terms of, you said squaring, I think that part using it as spells and healing was really, and, and just a recognition, right? Like if we just begin with naming the thing and realizing that I had some, I had been hiding. And so laying that bare and being like, okay, what can I do? Also, what are, what are some deeper preventative steps? What are some things that I can do more and more so that will help me? Um, and, and I think, you know, I'm still making those changes in my life and still hope, hopefully seeing positive, positive movement towards, towards better health. Um, you know, it's hard. I actually woke up this morning with a little vertigo and I got so mad and I, I was before this call, I was on the couch a little bit and I was like, okay, I'm going to be fine, but I haven't had it in so long. And, but I think it's, it, it's a very interesting thing. I don't know if it's a pressure changes or it's an inner ear thing or, you know, and, uh, I mean, the doctors say it's an inner ear thing. This is where I get into my theories of what is actually wrong with me. Um, but I think it's, it's very interesting to write from a space of, again, unknowing. And I think so many times when we go to the page, we think we have to have answers. And honestly, I think that that's actually what makes poems fail is when we think we have the answer. <laughs> and if we can kind of surrender to the fact that we do not know, we don't know anything. I have no wisdom. I have absolutely no wisdom. And I think when I come to the page with that and I'm just trying to interrogate the self and the world, then, you know, more authentic poems come from it. The Vulture and the Body. On my way to the fertility clinic, I pass five dead animals. First, a raccoon with all four paws to the sky, like he's gonna catch whatever bullshit load falls on him next. Then, a grown coyote, his golden-furred body soft against the white cement lip of the traffic barrier, trickster no longer, an eye closed to what's coming. Close to the water tower that says Florence, y'all, which means I'm near Cincinnati, but still in the bluegrass state and close to my exit, I see three dead deer, all staggered, but together. And I realize as I speed past in my death machine that they are a family. I say something to myself that's between a prayer and a curse. How dare we live on this earth? I want to tell my doctor about how we all hold a duality in our minds, futures entirely different, footloose or forged. I want to tell him how lately it's enough to be reminded that my body is not just my body, 
but that I'm made of old stars and so is he. And that last Tuesday, I sat alone in the car by the post office and just was for a whole hour, no one knowing how to find me until I got out the sound of the car door shutting like a gun and mailed letters, all of them saying, thank you. But in the clinic, the sonogram wand showing my follicles, he asks if I have any questions and says, things are getting exciting. I wanna say, but what about all the dead animals? But he goes quicksilver and I'm left to pull my panties up like a big girl. Some days there is a violent sister inside of me and a red ladder that wants to go elsewhere. I drive home on the other side of the road going south now. The white coat has said I'm ready and I watch as a vulture crosses over me heading toward the carcasses I haven't properly mourned or even forgiven. What if instead of carrying a child, I am supposed to carry grief? The great black scavenger flies parallel now, each of us speeding intently and driven toward what we've been taught to do with death. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So there's a line in this poem um, that really punches me in the chest every single time. Um, and that's the line, um, what if instead of carrying a child, I am supposed to carry grief? Um, this question for me highlights a lot of the book's themes, um, but it's kind of more than this, right? The book is obsessed with what we carry with us day to day, moment to moment, even meeting to meeting, whether that's grief or love or angst or happiness or what have you. And of course, the major theme being right, wanting to carry a child. So can you tell us a little more about these ideas of carrying and how you approached it in this book? Mm. Yeah, you know, I hadn't realized that that was a theme. And as soon as it happened, I thought, oh, that's what this is. Um, and a lot of it also had to do with sort of the way I carry, we carry our bodies on our souls, <laughs> right? Like, what is it? Like the water sack on the soul. Like that's, that's what we're lugging around. Um, and I think that's, I've always been interested in how we store things, where we keep them. Like, where do we keep it? Like, do I put, you know, like, are my ghosts here in the collarbone? Are they in the rib? You know, um, I don't know, but I'm, I feel like we, we hold all these people and all these things and all these events in our blood and in our bodies. And we have, you know, we have the events of our ancestors within our blood and in our bodies. I mean, that's proven, it runs through us. And so I feel like to me, the idea of that we are not just a body freely moving in the world. We are dragging this great uh, chaos of the universe with us as we go. <laughs> And um, it, I, for me, it was, a, it was a real recognition of like, oh, no wonder people get tired, <laughs> right? Like, no wonder we're just exhausted. Like, it just, it made so much sense to me. It's like, oh, we're not just carrying the groceries. <laughs> right? We're carrying like my ancestors crossing a border, you know, the native tribe, the Tarascan tribe that my grandfather's from, 
the cool, you know, like all of these things, like we are, we are dragging that with us and that is part of our blood. And in that, in that recognition of it, I thought it is a grief and that it also felt like maybe to go back to that particular line, that maybe that was an honor and that maybe in that recognition that it, that maybe my job was to carry something that wasn't a child, but to acknowledge what we're carrying all within us. And that, 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 that in, in and of itself is a mothering and a holding and a way of being in the world that is worthy of value. Mm. I love that, um, which like fits really neatly with my next question too, maybe about collaboration. But like before I get to that, I do really want to say I love this poem so much too because of the sentence right in the middle. I've been thinking a lot about sentences that start with the word I and mm. the kind of pressure it puts on like the last word of that same sentence. So the one that starts with I want to tell him how and then ends with you just mm -hmm. like it takes me away. Like, I just like, it's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, but on collaboration and, and maybe ancestors are also like another way to think about collaboration. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, there are four poems in your book, which were written as a series uh, of poetry letters, correspondences with Natalie Diaz, uh, which was published in the New Yorker and then anthologized in, they said, a multi-genre anthology of contemporary collaborative writing. Um, I'm curious if you could just tell us more maybe about the collaborative process with Natalie specifically, um, and then just like maybe like collaboration, like more broadly, you know, with your ancestors, how you, you like maybe even the direct address, which you employ like heavily outside of like these four poems in this book, like how that is a kind of collaboration. Um, yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, I feel really moved by the fact that I was able to write those poems with Natalie and we're still writing, um, we're, you know, we're, it, things are still happening. Um, the pandemic has, you know, put pressure on all of us though in different ways. So it comes slowly, poems come slowly anyway. But yeah, Natalie had approached me and said that she wanted to do a collaboration and she, um, we had met and really just immediately hit it off and, and we kept, there was something about our work that's very, very different. And I think Natalie always is intrigued by that, um, that she sees something that it's like, there's a friction and uh, she's such a textural person. And I think she's like, we should do something. There's something there that's happening. And um, she laughs that I was so terrified she was gonna make me draw or something because she's like multi-talented, you know, she's a genius. So she, I was afraid she was like, oh, this is gonna, I was like, I don't know what this collaboration is gonna be. And so out of fear, I said, why don't we make it poems and I'll, I'll write letters to you and um, I'll start and you can see if you want to continue. And um, so sort of nervously, I started the first one and, and immediately the voice shifted, speaking directly to her, speaking directly to um, not only her as a, a, a person, but her as a poet and knowing her poetics and knowing her poems deeply Right, it wasn't just like, oh, this is a person who happens to write poems, but poems that I have loved and admired and cherished. 
and taught. And so it was very interesting to sort of go into that and try to be like, okay, I've got to be myself and I can't really adopt her language. But at the same time, I want to make sure this is a shared world. Um, And so I wrote the first poem and then she wrote back. And I think I was just so like, we were both kind of like, oh, something's happening. And we got so scared. I think that we were like, you know, that moment when I think if you've ever played music or something where like something sounds amazing and no one can like look at each other. Cause you're like, oh, I think we're making something really good right now. And I, I don't know if it's me or, you know, what's happening. And that, that, that we had that moment and it sort of stopped and we just, all of our emails would just say poem attached and there was no other correspondence. And so we would text each other and we'd be like, how are you? Whatever. But for the most part, we were almost scared to like have any conversation that was outside of the world of the poems because we wanted them truly to be epistolary. We wanted them truly to be poems. Um, I mean, letters, you know, so they, like I, that felt really, really important to us is to have them be letters uh, and contain information really contain like, I am here. Like, what would you, what would you say in a letter as opposed to sort of a poetic abstract letter, right? That these actually became evidence of where we were in the world, how our bodies were being moved through the world, et cetera. And that became an important part of it. Um, It was an extraordinary moment. And I, I'm hoping we can continue as we, as things slow down a little bit, we, we've been laughing that during the pandemic, and I'm sure you've heard this and, and are aware of it in your own lives where everyone initially was like, you know, just take your time. Like we're all going to get, and now everyone's like, okay, great. Can I have five things by Monday? But how are you? And you're like, wait, I thought we were all supposed to be taking it easy. <laughs> so that's where I think she is and I'm at. So, um, but it's, but it's, it's happening. Um, and I loved, I loved the second part of your question in terms of collaboration with others. And I think, I, th- I think of that very seriously. Um, I know Natalie does as well, actually, it's part of her poems. But I do think like I, I talk backward, right? I talk backward and t- for my ancestors. I feel like I wouldn't be here without them. Um, there is an acknowledgement, I think, of not just the ancestors that are human, but the trees and the plants and, and the land. And I, I take that, they, they, that feels very serious to me. Um, and I, I think I am, I think part of my poetics, I guess you could say, which is also sort of my personal philosophy, um, is my deep belief and need to acknowledge the connectedness of all things. And I think that collaboration is the greatest gift of my life. <laughs> so that connectedness of the world, you know, of, of this present moment and what has come before and after, that is always where I'm finding the most fertile ground for what this life is and to interrogate what this life is. Um, and that's sort of without, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, so I, I don't, I have, you know, that belief is sort of something I, it's not something new, <laughs> but it's, I think for me, it's something that has just made sense to me and been shown to me throughout my own experience on the planet. I love that. And, and that makes me think too, and I'm curious how you think of like, you know, your book is 
to me, I'm struck with like confronting like futility. You know, I think of like the image in the leash all of the time about the sort of silvery fish bellies in the like water. Um, and, and how like maybe collaboration like is a kind of response. And I guess like how you view collaboration as like a kind of response, like to overcome that feeling of futility in the face of that. A hundred percent. I think that it is the offering. It is, you have given me this life, you know, and you've given me this creek, <laughs> this creek water and this, you know, this, I, how can I acknowledge it, but, but praise it. And then that feels like the praise is not false, right? Because I think so many times it comes from a place of like, how could you write a hopeful poem or a praise poem? Or how could you write a poem that's supposed to make me feel better? Like who wants to open a book and be like, oh, this poem is supposed to make me feel better, right? (laughs) We're definitely going to be suspicious of that. Um, But when it comes from a place of like, okay, how how can I offer something back to this gift of life? considering especially right now how many people we're losing daily right across our globe um and in that acknowledgement of mortality and and the passing of life it feels like there has to be something of a mirror that we hold up and say but look like look there is still beauty and what a gift it is to have this as long as i can and uh, I, I think that they're like in terms of, I, I understand that idea of fighting against utility. And I think right now, so many artists are deep in that. They are deep in that feeling of like, um, what is the point, right? I'm not a frontline worker, you know, or maybe I am. I know we have a lot of artists and poets that are frontline workers. But like, like, how do I come home and make art after I've gone through that? Or how do I, all of these things. I um, I think that that is how I, I, I think not only justify it, but how I feel like it's actually really important and necessary is that if we don't give that offering, then what are we doing, right? I'm much more interested in saying, okay, here, here, here's this poem for a tree. Like, all right, I'm going to write 20 poems about birds. It's going to happen, you know, because you've saved my life over the last four months or whatever it is. And, you know, they may not be great, amazing, transcendent poems, but they are proof of life. And back again, again, I'm saying, thank you. I'm here. Thank you. I'm here. You know, and, and sometimes that's enough, especially right now in the middle of such great uh, grief. And collective grief at that. Uh, there's something, and this is not a question at all, just something that I that goes along with this conversation that I've noticed it's in your book, the carrying is like the idea of offering and giving back and the idea of saying I'm here, the necessity in that for me aligns a lot with how um how detailed you you are in your naming in the book, like actually naming trees and birds and plants and that I feel like that the catering to naming and being detailed is kind of like an offering and giving back to the world around us. And I think that's, it's just so beautiful to think about it in a context of necessity and uh, opposition of futility, right? The idea of like, I'm offering the world because they offer me so much. So I have to name what I'm offering because it's so important to my life, right? So to be detailed is a type of um, care for something, right? And I think your book is so care, careful and caring of the things around the speakers and the birds and all these things. So. Yeah, I think that aligns very, very nicely. 
Thank you. Yeah. I do feel like it's an honoring, like it feels like that's, and I feel like that's a job. <laughs> and so every time I do feel that, that futility, um, it feels like I lean back into what can I give back, even if it's not to humanity, which sometimes you don't want to give anything back to. <laughs> right? Sometimes you're like, mm, I don't want to give anything to you right now. <laughs> so I feel like there's a, in that, in that recognition of like, well, what is, what is beyond that? You know, then it becomes like, all right, I want to, I want to honor. And that naming it's interesting. I, there's this wonderful talk that um, Robin Wall Kimmerer gives where she talks about how like the average American can name and identify a hundred brand names and can, uh, can barely name 10 names of plants and trees. And I think about that a lot and I think it stuck with me and identifying and just saying, even if those are not the names, right? Like these are their Westernized names or they're the non-native names or, and you know, the Latin name, whatever name it is to, to honor it with even a recognition. Like I know you because your bark is different, right? I know you because, you know, you, during spring, you get those little green, green balls on the tree. That's different than that one. That means you're a hackberry. And that, you know, like I find that in and of itself becomes like, okay, I, I know you, I know you. And like, we ask so much of the world to look at us and it feels like, but are we really looking at the world? And yeah, I want to be, I want to be, I want my gaze to be outward because the inward's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I'm built that way. I'm built to overthink everything. So that's going to happen. But to be constantly going outward is a, is a way that I think I, I, um, I feed that need to be um, connected and to, to feel again, like it's, there's an honoring happening. The particularity of that naming feels like such a gift. Yes. To the outer world that it's naming and also for me as a reader particularly this year um because this book allows us to be particularly in different places with with different sorts of landscapes and creatures and plants and you know for me as a southerner who's been you know stuck in seattle um you know away from the landscape of my soul and my people really um it's so cool to me that you are based primarily in Kentucky and I love like the moments of Southernness that come up in this book. And um, something I just love to ask people who, particularly who moved to the South from somewhere else is like, what is something from your perspective that people who have never lived there tend to assume and get wrong about it? Or like bonus points, what's something you thought about the South that once you then lived there for a while, you realized was not true? Yeah. I think honestly, the first thing that always strikes me is that nobody talks about the physical beauty of the South. Like I was just talking to someone the other day, he was from Arkansas and I said, oh, Arkansas is so beautiful. And he, he was like, it is. I'm like, yeah, no, it's beautiful. I, it's beautiful. I've driven through it. He's like, no one ever says that. <laughs> like, it's a beautiful state. I think that that part always sort of really surprised me that people don't talk about the gorgeousness and lushness of so much of the South. 
Um, that, that to me was very strange. I mean, as soon as I was in Kentucky, I thought, oh, I, you know, this is really stunning. Um, and, you know, it, it has a starkness in the winter, but I'm not a winter person, but, you know, I'll take it. Uh, and then, but I feel like there's a, that to me was, was really strange. And I still, I still fight against that where people go, oh, you're living in Kentucky. And they have that kind of look at you like, oh. And um, I think, and I, first thing I say is like, yeah, it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. Uh, and then, you know, it is. Uh, so I think that was something for sure. Um, I also think that, you know, people, people always think about it as less diverse, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> right? Like, I'm like, wait, like, there are, there are parts of California that are not diverse at all. And yet they pride themselves on being very, like I'm from California, but like, you know, very diverse, et cetera. It's like, Hmm, have you been to San Francisco lately? <laughs> like, you know? And uh, so that part I, I find really interesting as well is that there seems to be this strange um, idea of the South that is not at all my experience in the South. Now that said, there are a lot of issues with it and living in a very, 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 very red state in which only two counties vote blue. Um, you know, uh, there are places that I don't want to go in Kentucky <laughs> and, uh, and I will continue not to go. And that is going to be the case. But, uh, but I do think that that those two things in particular, the beauty and the fact that the fact that really it is a very diverse landscape and, you know, I think that that part is, is frustrating sometimes when people think that that is not the case, you know. Sundown and all the damage done. Nearly nine and still the sun's not slunk into its nightly digs. The burnt meat smell of midweek cookouts and wet grass hangs in the air like loose familiar summer garb. Standing by the magnolia tree, I think if I were to live as long as she did, I'd have 11 more years. And if I were to live as long as him, I'd have 49. As long as him, I'd be dead already. As long as her, this would be my final year. There's a strange contentment to this countdown, a nodding to this time, where I get to stand under the waxy leaves of the ancient genus, a tree that appeared before even the bees, and watch as fireflies land on the tough tepals until each broad flower glows like a torch-lit mausoleum. They call the beetles conspicuous bioluminescent, a cold light. But why then do I still feel so much fire? Thank you, Ava. 
thank you so much for blessing us with your time and your grace. Thank you, dear listener, for sticking with us through this third season and collaborating with us each and every step of the way. It has been such a blessing to think and be curious with you. If you haven't yet rated this podcast five stars or whatever maximum amount of whatever noun that your platform uses to judge how good we are, please do so. Set it to the maximum amount. Do it right now. And then because you haven't done it yet, make up for it by sending us to like your top eight friends. Start a chain mail with us in it and get them to send it to their top eight friends. And then the last thing is follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send your questions, uh, your recipes, um, your most embarrassing family photos, um, your favorite type of hat uh, to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. It is so, so, so good to be back. Bless you and all of your beloveds. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Be good. The world is falling. We can maintain full dinner origami. Making crane cranes. Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain. I put salt in the water when I'm cooking up the pasta. Trying to keep me quiet, but you know it's gonna cost ya. Cause I cook them proper, redder than a lobster. Gourmet bait, but my mama was a monster. You wanna weaponize this? Gonna show you these hands. Gonna take on these streets. Gonna show you who's man's. Cause my crew mob steady. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy and spaghetti. Feddy in the.